podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Brain again, and he's got it! Gavin was closing in, oh, Gavin has scored! Abdul Osman against Brad Jones to put Liverpool out of the cup and not that to three! Hello and welcome to It's All Cobblers to Me. I'm Charles Commons. This is Danny Brothers. Hello. And I'm delighted to say that we're joined by a man whose career spanned over 500 games for nine different clubs. A knowledgeable player on the pitch, as well as being quite clever off of it. He played 44 times for Northampton Town across two spells from January 2012 to May 2013, captaining the Cobblers at Wembley in his last professional game. Welcome to the pod, Clark Carlisle. How are you doing, Clark? Oh, hey, Charles, thank you very much. Hey, Danny, you all right, gents? Yeah, good, good, thank you. There's so much in the introduction there already, uh, Clark, but there's so much more to talk about as well with, with your career, which is fabulous, I think. But let's start with your early years, shall we? So a question that I love to always ask every single footballer is, did you always want to be a footballer? Was was that it from day one? Categorically, yes. Next question. No, <laughs> <laughs> no it, it, yes. Football was ingrained in me, even though probably dissimilar to, to most lads. I didn't really play for a structured side until I was 12 years old because we grew up in the Mormon church uh, and in the Mormon church, you weren't allowed to do any activities on a Sunday. And, you know, at that time in the 80s, all kids football was Sunday league, wasn't it? It was school football or Sunday league. And so I didn't have a chance to get involved in any of that. It was only when we stopped going to the Mormon church when I was like 11, I think, that um, I was able to go and join a local Sunday league side called ASE Ribble uh, in Leyland. And um, I vividly remember the manager of the side, like my dad was like, oh, you know, my me, me boy's decent. Can he have a trial at your side? And the manager, a guy called Tony Knight, he said, well, you know, I've got a really good side here. He's going to have to be decent to get in. <laughs> we had a game against Koppel. We won 11-0 and I scored six. <laughs> and Tony was like, yeah, he can come back next week if he wants. Training's on Wednesdays. <laughs> but once we got out of there um, and I joined my Sunday league team, uh, it, it quickly went from, you know, like zero to 60 in my involvement in football. But it was more important to me than just me playing the game because my dad used to play Saturday and Sunday league football in around Preston, Preston and District Leagues, and uh, he was brilliant. He had trials at North End, he had England trials, but broke his ankle as a kid. So, you know, football was a love of his. And me playing football, my dad and my granddad used to come to every game that I played, you know, and at that time, we didn't really have much quality time with me old man. You know, he, he, due to societal issues, you know, he was a black guy growing in, uh, trying to d- raise a family in a predominantly white neighbourhood and he couldn't get a job and he was dealing with all these obstacles in his life. And he dealt with them by locking himself in his man cave and smoking weed, you know, so we didn't really get much quality time with me, old man. So to play football 
uh, and for him to watch, for it to be something we were both passionate about, and for me to achieve and see his, you know, pride and joy in that, it was huge for me. You know, football had such a greater meaning than me just enjoying the game. And so very quickly, I went from Sunday League to signing for Blackburn Rovers uh, Centre of Excellence. And this was when they just won the Premier League and they built the big Blackburn Rovers indoor centre and uh, Kenny Dalglish was a manager and that. And yeah, you know, I, oh, my enjoyment and excitement in youth football was was really, really huge. I, I, I imagine that that kind of multiplied then. So you go from Sunday League, youth football, to then being signed for a, for a professional centre of excellence all of a sudden, you know, it's it's not just park pitches anymore. It's a massively multi-million pound building that has just been built specifically for that. And you're now maybe going in and going, this this could be me for life, set up, doing what I love. Yeah, I don't think that ever crossed my mind, you know, Charles, because you, you, you've got to think of the, the timing. This is like 91, 92, 93, and the Premier League had only just started so, you know, there wasn't really that that proliferation of cash and prestige around that. It was just starting as a new concept. And to be honest, a lot of football was still up in arms that the Premier League had been started. But, um, yeah, the money hadn't really infiltrated right then. And it was just more about the opportunity. You know, as I got a little bit older, I, it became more and more of a reality that it might be an opportunity for me. But then at 14... Blackburn released me and that was the first time I fell out of love with football you know because at 14 years of age I'm just starting to harbor these thoughts that I can do this I'm I'm getting into don't forget I'm a council estate kid and I'm getting introduced to these wonderful facilities and all the rest of it and then all of a sudden they just say actually no you're not good enough bang to the curb I remember I cried for like three days. Uh, I said to my mum and dad, I'm, I'm never playing football again. But luckily for me, a scout from Blackpool came and knocked on our door, uh, a man called Fred O'Donoghue. His name will resonate in that Lancashire area. And he knocked on the door. He said, I hear Blackburn have released you. He said, well, look, I scouted your dad when he was a kid and I've been waiting for his offspring so that I can cast my eye over them. So, you know, some 16, 17 years after the, he scouted me dad, this guy comes knocking on our door and says, I want you to come in and play for Blackpool. So uh, I signed for Blackpool from there, and, and that was like the bona fide beginning of, of my career. Let's get to Sixfields then. A.D. Boothroyd is the man that signs you. Obviously a man that you already knew very well. You met him first at Leeds when you were there. Um, and then he took you to Watford when, uh, was that his first managerial job? He was a it coach was, at yeah. Leeds, wasn't he? So he then takes you to Watford, brings you in as a first team centre-back, wants you to play, wants you in his side. You know, clearly a friendship develops there. And therefore, when League Two Northampton Town come knocking um, you're at Preston at the time on in on loan, and did, yeah. was it Graham Wesley that came in and and decided that he wanted to make a change? Uh, no, it was Lord Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> it was he who should not be named. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, 
Eighty-three three. I'm presuming, therefore, gives you a phone call and says, "It does indeed." Well, you, you say a friendship started. I'll tell you how the friendship started. We were at Leeds. AD was a coach, and AD, as you know, is is so qualified, is so passionate about taking things on to the next level. You know, and, and really improving players. And um, he would put on fantastic coaching sessions at Leeds. Uh, but the manager at the time, Kevin Blackwell. And Kevin Blackwell, uh, even though Kevin's eminently qualified, uh, in that managerial role, he, he the way he treated his staff and some of the players was, was just plain disrespectful, you know. And uh, there are there are some players who uh, value respect over knowledge, and um, he would AD be putting on a fantastic session. And I remember Ke- Kevin Blackwell had come bouncing out in his Cuban heels. Uh, and he'd be like, no, 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 that's a load of rubbish. AD, go off and do the kids. I'm going to do this. But we as players were like, this is a brilliant session. But but it was a session that's probably on the cusp of, you know, the new changing format of, of football coaching. And it, the, the way he spoke to the kit man, the physio, was really full of disrespect. So AD and I used to bond... Uh, on the dance floor over a pine. <laughs> Where AD had just been finished spinning on his head. <laughs> and then we'd have a chat about how, you know, ridiculous A, B and C was. And so when he got the opportunity to go and manage at Watford, he gave me a call. He was like, Clark, you don't want to be with that guy there. You know, we're, we're going to come and do things differently down at Watford. And uh, yeah, I went straight down the road and he was right. We got promoted in the first season, you know, to Premier League. It was awesome. But yeah, when um, when he was at Northampton, I had just been, I'd just gone on loan to Preston. Uh, it was going really well under Phil Brown. And then we lost like two games and he got the sack. There's something in me that feels there's, there was something else going on there. Because we'd won seven on the bounce previously. You know, we were doing really well. But anyhow, Graham Wesley comes in. I don't know what what you guys know of Graham Wesley, but um, he came in and his opening meeting um, at North End. It was actually a day of a game. It was about half one. And he came in, he said, right, you lads, uh, my kids don't call me dad. They call me medal winner. I'm like, really? Really? He's he's talking to Barry Ashby. He's talking to Ian Hume. He's talking to Neil Meller, myself, Graham Alexander. And and this guy's won the conference north and the conference, and he says his kids call him medal winner. Lost us immediately. But anyhow, his regime was just off the wall, different to anything that I've ever experienced. Uh, Ad gave me a call. Do you want to come down to Northampton? I was like, mate, I'll be there in a heartbeat. You know, and I've got to say, it was an easier decision for me to make, even though the Cobblers were fighting a relegation battle in um, in League Two at the time, because I was still on loan from Burnley. So, you know, it wasn't a financial decision for me. The only financial workings that had to be made were between AD, Northampton and the clubs as to what percentage uh, the cobblers paid, so it was very easy for for me to make that decision to be with AD, to be somewhere where I knew I was valued and where I knew that the training and the regime was going to be something that that I could buy into. Mm. We were bottom of the table at that point as well, weren't we? Yeah, bottom, bottom yeah, of the yeah. right? I think we just lost the Torquay, which I think I remember going to. But then like, after that, we just suddenly surged up the table. So pretty yeah, much single inside, I think so. single-handedly <laughs> saved our football league status. You know. One of the biggest moments, and it's one of the biggest moments in my life as a human being, 
Uh, do you remember the Hereford game? Yeah, the nil nils. Yeah, yeah. Away at Hereford. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'd, I didn't know it at the time, but I know it now on reflection. Um, for 10 days before that, I was in one of the biggest depressive episodes of my life. And I didn't, obviously, I, I didn't know I had depression until uh, 2014 or, or there or thereabouts. So um, I was in one of the biggest episodes of my life and I was self-medicating massively. I was drinking heavily. I was sleeping all the time. Ed was like, where are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm stuck on the motorway, stuff like that. And I actually went missing for two days. Uh, when I say went missing, I, I went off the radar. I went, I went into to a meeting in London. I got absolutely battered, and that carried on for two days uh, on a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. And eventually, I picked the phone up to AD, and it was like, where are you? What are you doing? I said, oh, I'm in London, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what I'm doing. And he, he immediately, he left training. He, he drove down to London to meet me, uh, picked me up, and drove me back up to Northampton. And in that car journey of about two and a half hours, we had the, I would say, the first and the most honest conversation I've ever had in football. And, uh, I, you know, I shared what was going on. AD shared his insight. He shared his care for me and for me as a person. You know, and we, and we got all that down, got back to the hotel in Northampton. He's like, look, I want you to have a good night's sleep and then we'll see you in the morning if, you, if you're good to play. And we had a good night's sleep and, you know, we say it's good to talk. The difference in my uh, feeling and perception that very next morning was stratospheric to how I was feeling the day before. Mm. And um, and I, I put my boots on, we went out there, we got a draw, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Away at yeah. Hereford. Yeah. It was one of the hardest games of my life because physically I was on my backside. Mm-hmm. Because of what Eddie had done for me the day before, I would have run up Everest twice that day. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? It's that that's the game that pretty much that did secure us, I think, the lead, didn't it? Because I think we'd we'd lost three before that. We were kind of hanging on other people's results, keeping us up, and we still needed that one point and we we went and got it. But to for that to happen so transformatively for you over 24 hours it, it shows probably a different side to ad boothroyd to what a lot of our listeners will probably think of him after the way it finishes and all that kind of thing so i think it's quite it's quite important to bring these stories out i think sometimes because you never know what impact a conversation is having he probably didn't know what impact even him coming and making the effort to come and pick you up would have like even that fact i think would have been well, i assume exactly. massive I- for you you know what? What's massive for me, and especially knowing and doing what I do now, is that he didn't come to me as an asset. He came to me as a human being, and you know, working through that conversation and situation at that time actually increased the value of his asset the very next day. Mm. That that's the importance of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 100%. absolutely. You know, if he'd have come to me saying, "Oh, we've got a game tomorrow. What the heck are you doing?" I don't think that would have worked for me in that situation. No. So when you signed for Northampton, Clark, I, I don't know whether you kind of knew this or, or or felt this, but from my point of view, just personally, us signing Clark Carlisle was was huge. You played in the Premier League. You were, you know, in in my eyes, you were a fantastic centre back and a, and a leader, which was something that we felt that we desperately needed at that time in that battle against relegation yeah and normally being a Northampton fan we're used to you get loanies coming in they're coming in because 
uh, well, it's either loanies or full transfers. They're coming in because there's money. But if you're right down at the bottom of the league, then you know that you're not going to be going and getting, you know, brilliant players that are on the rise necessarily because they want to go and win a promotion. They want to get something that's got gravitas with it. Whereas potential relegation is not something that everybody would want to have on their CV. But having a player like you come in, I mean, the rumour that went around beforehand that it was going to happen, I was giddy with excitement. (laughs) And then when you do sign, it's one of those where you go, oh my God, that's that's Clark Carlisle. He's played in the Premier League. And not we're not talking like 10 years ago. He played in the Premier League recently. Yeah. Um, Yes, okay, you'd had some injuries, which maybe meant you didn't quite get to the full potential of Premier League football for the entirety of your career. But you had a great career in the top two divisions of English football for the most part of it. To then come to League Two, for me, it was a marquee signing. Despite the fact that it was only a loan and we were like, well, you'll go back to, to Burnley at the end of the season. That'll probably be be it. Did you actually feel like you were coming in and, and, and feel any of that kind of awe from the fan base of sort of going, he's a real player. That's no disrespect to anybody that was already there. What a really interesting question. Do you know, I, I don't think, well, in fact, it's not even think, I didn't feel any of that. It, that it's wonderful for me to hear right now that that's a... It's awesome to hear that that's how it was received. But you, what you have to factor in for myself is that the very points that you're stating, they mark the decline to me. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. so so as opposed to me coming in and being, yeah, I'm the great I am, you know, I'm, I'm actually at a point where I'm trying to salvage. A, a career or, or you know or hopefully harbor a, a a new contract ongoing even if it was at northampton you know because once you start getting loaned out by clubs and farmed out you know i i was on loan from alone at that point to me as a human being i'm being doubly rejected you know that it's not just my parent club who doesn't want me it's the subsidiary club doesn't want me either and and I'm sat at home thinking, my God, uh, am I useless now? You know what? What have I got left? And so when I come to Northampton, I'm I'm actually really grateful that someone wants me to play in their side. I think something that feeds into this is that, and it is the reason why I'm on loan from alone. I was never the type of player who, if they weren't picked, would just happily sit in the stand and pick the wage up. You know, to me, I was one of those people I needed to play uh, because <laughs> going back to having daddy issues a, a, as a kid, you know, being play to uh, playing was being accepted and validated. D- to play was to be approved. So if anyone didn't pick me, it wasn't just that I w- wasn't good enough to play. I was being rejected as a human being and that had a catastrophic effect, uh, effect inside me. So... You know, I was delighted to come to Northampton at that point. And because I was viewing it as what it went to meant to me, I don't think I actually took on board that it would be received that, you know, I was any kind of stellar signing or anything like that. 
I, I think it was, I mean, I can only speak for myself, obviously, but for me, it felt like, um, wow, we, we've, we've actually signed a, a, a player that, first of all, I've heard of. And second, <laughs> <laughs> and second of all, I knew what you were like as a player because yeah, I'd yeah. seen you, you know, highlights or live matches on the TV. So therefore, I knew what we were getting as yeah. such i appreciate what you're saying in terms of that you felt well that it, looking back it, it signified actually the downturn and towards the end of your career but from us and I, I guess this is almost lower small club mentality which i'll get pelters for <laughs> but to to go and sign a player like that and don't forget we had bayo akinfenra in the side at this yes point. you you've already got a massive being in Bayo. <laughs> The best way to put it, the 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 aura of that man is incredible. Um, and then you come in at the other end of the pitch. So now we've got this focal point in attack, and for me, a focal point in defense, somebody to really lead that line and to basically just nothing got past you, or at least it seemed like that. Maybe that is my memory, <laughs> you know, playing tricks on me. But it felt like we went from a team that essentially was fairly, not necessarily easy, but but we obviously weren't doing very well being at the bottom of the league, to suddenly being able to defend. Mm. And having just, um, it, it was almost like just having that presence of, uh, of your mind, of your footballing mind and knowledge of the game, how to read it. And you were then able to lead the other three that were in your back line to do the things that needed to happen, just the basics, to keep the ball out the back of the net. It's an astute insight, Charles, because you, you say it, uh, it seemed like nothing got past me. Uh, and the, the, the trick in that is that I came in and I used my voice to defend. Mm. I actually didn't do that much. <laughs> you know, I headed the ball very well. But what I did, and and what I've always tried to, um, I've always respected in my game, is is I've been the the eyes and ears of the others, and when I do that and I defend with my voice, that makes my job so much easier. So in the way that we defended, I think it's probably underestimated the value of Luke Goodridge and Ben Harding. Because mm -hmm. those two listening to me and going where I want them to go in that middle middle of the park means that they run 15k in a game, uh, and me and Kelv only have to run five. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. defensively, it makes us solid. You know, if you can if you can put people in areas that deter the opposition from sending the ball into attack, job done. Uh, you know, I think as a centre-half, if, if you've got a great connection with that defensive midfielder and they trust your words implicitly, you will have a fantastic defensive unit. And and that's what I wanted to come in and do. And I think at Northampton was one of the first times that because I, I had played the majority of my games in the Premier League and the Championship, I didn't feel fraudulent in coming and barking orders out. Mm. You know, I didn't feel like, um, you know, these are players who I, I should defer to or, or anything like that. No disrespect to those players, but 
you know, like you said, I just played in the Premier League. I'd, I'd just had my, <laughs> I had just had rings run round me by Thierry Henry and and Mark Overmars and Drogba and that. You know, where I can apply that in this situation, mm, yeah. and and it worked. Mm. It worked. I, I think, like from our point of view as fans of a League Two team, though, as we've talked about it so many times on the pod, that Aloni can come in still from the Premier League Championship. <clears throat> What sets them apart is their attitude, especially at centre back. You, you, we've had so many lone players coming over the years, where they just like drag themselves around the pitch. They'll just be like, "Oh, I'm bigger than you. You know, I've, I'm more, I'm better than this. I'm just coming here to the end of the season." Especially when we're bottom of the league, it would have been so easy for someone to come in in that position and think, "You know, I'm here for the end of the season. I don't care what happens to this club. I don't care if they go down and just like get fit, go back to their parent club and just be done with it." and not care, which we've seen a lot over the years. But the, that's the one thing that set you apart from a lot of loanees is that you came in, you did all that shouting, that organising, and you just gave a voice to that squad and a leadership to that squad that kept us in the Football League. I know we joked about it earlier, but it was such a major part of keeping this club in the Football League and it it wouldn't go unnoticed by anybody, the impact that you had coming into us at there because who knows where we would have been if that didn't happen if, if you didn't well, come it's in incredible, like we it's would, incredible you yeah. know Danny because I came in and I saw the constituent parts of the side and I couldn't understand why it was at the bus league hmm. you know Kelvin centre off um was it Lee in goal was it Lee uh, you had um so Shane Higgs would have been in goal for the majority before you signed yeah and then Neil Kitson would have played a few games not long after, he saved a couple of penalties as well, <laughs> if you remember. Yeah. Um, it, so, yeah, it was Shane Higgs, Neil Kitson and Freddie Hall were the goalkeepers that Freddie season. Hall. Oh, I must be thinking of the, the season we got to a playoff final. Yeah, then. Lee Nichols was the online goalkeeper the yes, year after. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you Kel at, at the back uh, uh, and B up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tucker, you say he's a big presence. This guy is just a colossal of a human being. He's the most incredible. There are two loved and trusted friends that I have now in my life that I met in football, and B is one of them. Um, And I'll tell you this about B, because you you talked about his aura and his presence. He has it everywhere, doesn't he? Uh, And he has it in in multiple areas. So he's he's got his brand, he's got his beast mode on, he's doing this, he's doing that. What people, again, might often overlook or not see, just like what we said about AD, is, um, you know, trigger alert for anyone listening. I'm going to about talk about, uh, you know, my suicide attempt. Um, I tried to take my own life in 2014, uh, put myself in front of a lorry, uh, airlifted to hospital and B immediately drove up to Leeds and sat by my hospital bed for two days reading his Bible to me. Jeez. Now, people don't know that stuff mm. about this guy, you know, and um, to open my eyes and see the big destroyer there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And when I did, and he held my hands, uh, and he didn't ask questions, he said, Clark, I just want to sit with you, I just want to pray with you, brother. And uh, and he did that for two days at a time when I obviously, you know, thought I was worth nothing. And this guy showed my worth and value to him in that way. Uh, It's something I'll never, ever, ever forget. You know, so this guy's aura and his presence, it was bigger than just on the pitch. It was bigger than just in the dressing room. You know, the, he was uh, such an incredible man. 
and I, and I'm proud to know him. So knowing that you've got those two top and bottom of the pitch and uh, Ish Ishmael de Montac. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Mercurial. <laughs> what I saw this guy do in training, I'm like, why don't you do it on a Saturday? You know, this guy had capabilities. Um, I, c- I couldn't understand why the side wasn't performing in the league. And do you know what? I think it was just a bit of a coordination and a bit of guidance mm. uh, and maybe a calming presence. The good thing about being a centre-half and trying to be a calming presence in League 2 is that I don't have to get on the ball and do 60, 70, 80 passes a game because that's not what League 2 dictates. And if that was what Northampton needed at that time, I'd have been dead in the water. <laughs> you know, that that's not my game. It's a fact, I'll tell you what, case in point, because I went to York for a couple of months, didn't I? Under Gary Mills before I came to Northampton. And that's exactly what he wanted. Exactly what he wanted. He wanted a footballing centre-half. So I went in there, um, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, I can come to, um, you know, have that influence again on a team that's just come into league football. My gosh, I stuck out like a sore thumb. (laughs) You know, I I couldn't pass water. It was ridiculous. So uh, AD was like, do you want to come to Northampton? I'm a centre half. Get me out of here. <laughs> it, it's really interesting, actually, because so so that spell at York happened um, in between. So you'd you'd come on loan from Burnley to us, well, via Preston um, to us for the end of the 2011-2012 season. Yeah, we were hopeful. I know Ad Boothroyd wanted to sign you permanently. Burnley did release you at the end of that season, I believe. Mm-hmm. You ended up going to York. You couldn't. I presume work out the financials with Northampton that would get you a proper contract. And you then signed for York city. You played there until the November where you then signed on loan to us again Yeah. until the January is a short term loan for the point where basically we could get you into the transfer window, I presume to then sign permanently, which you then did. And you signed an 18 month contract at that point. Yeah. I was gutted. Going back, I, I know this just sounds like I'm just l- lavishing praise on you. That's um, all right, keep it coming. Keep it going. <laughs> I thought you would mind, yeah. Um, but I was gutted when, you know, I was thinking if we can get you signed permanently, wow, what a defence we're going to have the next season. We are going to go from being relegation candidates to, you know, I was hopeful, playoff contenders, as it did turn out to be. I was gutted when you didn't sign for us the first time, you know, there and then and i i i presumed at that point well that's it that's it it's over but there was always chat and i think it always came from ad boothroyd saying that we were still having conversations so whenever the guys from the radio northampton team at you know pre and post match conferences were were asking him the question mm. he was always bringing your name up and saying well we're still working on it we're still trying to get him in and he was so clever at the media, Aidy, wasn't he? he, well, he was, <laughs> yeah. And then and then it gets to November and you do come back and you do join us again. It's interesting that part of the reason for that was style of play essentially at York. You didn't feel suited you. So therefore come back, come to Sixfields permanently this time. And this is in a better side. Aidy has already worked a bit of magic 
He's gone and bought in some players that have improved us. To be fair, a lot of those players he bought in the previous January, Kelvin Langmead had come in. Um, he was your centre-back partner. You know, we'd got those players in and he then managed to actually add a little bit more magic to it that had get, got us further up the league. Mm-hmm. And obviously that ends in Wembley. And lots of excitement that, unfortunately, now is a, a Wembley appearance that especially Danny and I would rather forget. Mm-hmm. The thing is with this, you're the first person I think we've spoken to from that Wembley team. So we've got our own views on on what happens and why. And obviously that's all done through just basically from being right on the outside. We've got no inside knowledge at all. So I think, Danny, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially we all kind of got into Wembley, found out that Bayo wasn't starting, mm-hmm. and then went, well, that's that then. Yeah, I, was, I remember being clearly on Wembley Way, just like milling around, having a couple of beers on Wembley Way, and that it's the last bit of team news that we could have ever imagined. Like you'd think everyone's bought their Wembley beast mode on t-shirts and all that kind of thing. This was like Bayo's final basically to, to come in. Like it was the biggest shock to, to all of us. And we just thought from our fans point of view, we think it's such a drop. And it even felt like that inside the ground as well. And I don't know what it felt like in the dressing room or, or, or things like that. But, but to us, it was, it just felt flat from the start. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Uh, not playing B in that final, I, I think it's got to be one of Vady's biggest regrets because, to my mind, in all the time that I'd played for him, it, it was his biggest and most glaring error by a country mile. I would have even understood if he'd have played B and Platy. I, I'd have understood playing, you know, the two big man combo because. Uh, Bradford centre halves, especially and uh, Andrew Davis. Mm-hmm. You know he, he's feisty, he's feisty. So you get one of them to tie him up and win that aerial battle, and we had willing workers to you know to get the bits. The, the, there are two things that that B would have offered that I don't think Platy did. Platy didn't offer us any any mobility whatsoever, no, none whatsoever. You know, so even if the even if he rolled someone, I had no belief that he would get half a yard away to get the shot. Mm. Whereas B, if he rolled someone, that person stayed rolled. <laughs> yeah. Didn't they? You know, they stayed <laughs> on the floor, basically. <laughs> and no matter what attempts they had, they stayed at an arm's, le- arm's length away. Yep. You know, so that those two would add that. And also, and, you know, you, you're just reflecting, reflecting this point, but from a fan's perspective, there's no impact in the other dressing room for Platy. Mm. Yep. Yeah, you know, mm. th- th- there are certain matches that I know we we have won either when the team sheet goes out or when we're stood in the in the in the tunnel. Mm. And 95% of that is because you've got Biak and Fen were hollering at one end and me hollering at the other. And mm. in between is a cacophony, you know, of restless mm. vibration where they I, I don't care what end of the pitch you are. You, you're in for it today. Yeah. yeah. I, I, and that really conveys itself. Mm. Aidy knew the power of that because we used to practice it. We used to practice being in the tunnel when we were at Watford. See, if everyone's shouting, it's not impactful. 
Mm. So we would stand and strategically place people and we'd say, you do this, you jump up and down, you bounce here. And to the goalkeeper, it would say, tell the goalkeeper to stand in front of the opposing captain and bounce the ball across in front of their face against the wall and catch nice. it, bounce nice. and distract that. The only thing I can say is you don't understand it as a player the manager might have whatever politics are going on, whatever his strategic decisions are. I didn't understand why B wasn't playing and I wanted B to play, but the fact that he's not, I have to accept and get on with. Mm. So if I'm going to be the skipper, I can't be the one when we're having a big day out at Wembley, loads of those lads will have never been there before, will never go there again. I can't be the one going, oh my God, what's this? Oh, you know, this is going to be shit today. We've lost this, we've lost that. We can't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got to put that mask on, adopt the role and be everything positive, encouragement, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Uh, But you are right, you know, it took... It took a few teeth out of our mouth to not play being that final. But also, Bradford were fired up by their Wembley loss yes. only a month or so earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd experienced that with, with Burnley. When you lose so close, the next time you don't let it go. Yeah. And we, I could see the determination in these players that we're up against. Not that, not that it, you know, it made me count out, but I could see it. They're on it today, and it showed to me in the very first header I had against James Hansen. I will put my aerial ability up with anyone, you know, alongside my generation. And it opening 30, 40 seconds, the ball came up. I saw the ball. I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to have this." My gosh, the guy gave me elbow, forearm, planted me, and nodded it down for Naki Wells, and I was just like, "Oh, fizzle." I'm in for a game today. And he won the first three headers. And there's something psychological about me. Um, I've always set up in games. You know, the first thing you do, do it right. First thing you do, do it well. And if you don't, I don't want that to destroy my game. So if the first one doesn't go well, then you get it the next time. Well, the first two didn't go well. And I was like, right, you get it this time. And they scored. And I was like, oh. It. <laughs> <laughs> we're really going to be in for it today that was a tough game that I, I don't think we should underestimate the quality of the opposition Bradford had a decent side and a determined side out there oh absolutely I mean this was one of the things obviously they got to the final hadn't they of the it was the league cup wasn't it that, that they'd done such a fantastic run uh to get all the way through to the final um there they had a front line that was just on fire throughout the season with Narky Wells and Hanson. Classic big man, little man, wasn't it? Yeah, it was incredible. And obviously Narky Wells went on to have a career in the championship. I think Huddersfield was was one of the last teams he was at. Um, So it was one of those where you, you, the deflation of the fact that right from the beginning and the fact that essentially it was game over at half time from our perspective was a real blow. Um, what was it like in the change room after that? I mean, I, I can imagine it's pretty low, but was there any was there any kind of anger? You said about how it's not your place before the game as the captain to be going and questioning the manager, especially in front of the players. But was there any anger towards the decisions that were made tactically? For not, not in the immediate aftermath. Not no. not not in a Wembley dressing room. You know, you you're in a Wembley dressing room. It, the, the playoffs are the best way to get promoted. 
they are the worst way to not get promoted. Uh, and the the dejection and the sense of failure, um, it, more, it's a game that can change a player's life. Mm. You know, the, the 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 things that can happen after that, being in a a higher league, getting a new potential new contract, you know, and and, and all the rest of that, it can change a player's life. And then in that moment, that showpiece finale, all of them have got all their family there. All their friends there, all the fans there, anyone who's anyone who means something in your life is at this game. And you don't just feel the loss of that potential huge life-changing career step. You also feel the shame and the embarrassment, uh, uh, you know, of letting your family down, the fans and your friends. And it could have been so much more. So in the dressing room afterwards, it's abject failure. That's where you feel that there's the angerness comes after the angerness comes, you know, a week later when you're thinking when you've gotten over replaying your actual match incidents, because you do that for time. Let me tell you, I still replay uh, a match incident from the playoff final uh, QPR against Cardiff in, in 2003. I still play that in my mind. Well, what I should have done. So, you know, you go through all of those and then you start to think about the bigger picture, you know, and then you say, well, what chance did we have? Why, why did he do this? Why did they do that? That comes after. But in that, in that moment, in the immediate aftermath, and as captain, uh, even though I'm feeling that abject failure, I've got to go and console the others. You know, I've got to try and pick them up off the floor so that, you know, it's not hopefully a, a life-impacting incident, but it's just a missed opportunity, but there'll be more to come. It's a, Sorry, Charles, the reason why I went to York and didn't sign for Northampton was because I tried to retire the season before. I thought I'd got a job opportunity at ITV and, um, and I thought, you know what? A great way to go out, keeping Northampton in. I've done across all four leagues. Uh, let's make this transition into broadcasting. It didn't materialise. The verbal promises didn't make a contract. So, we, you know, we get into pre-season and the season starts and I've got no income. I need to play. So, York um, were interested. I went to York. It all got found out there, like you said, tactically. But then there was the opportunity to go and play with AD. Now, over the course of that season... Uh, I was having to have uh, cortisone injections in my knees and uh, anaesthetics in my ankles to play the games. In that playoff final, both ankles I had strapped at 90 degrees. Uh, I had to have an anaesthetic in both ankles and a painkiller in my right at half time and another painkiller at full time. And I had a young family and get off the bus and I can't move. You know, I've got young kids running around and I'm almost, uh, sometimes I did need a crutch and for three or four days, I can't move and interact with my family. So it's at that point where even though I still had a year left, it was it was nothing to do with finances. It was the physical toll of the game on my body. I couldn't put myself through another year of five injections a week, you know, to, to get through a match, no, no matter how... Um, much potential I thought there could have been in that squad. On that, because I think that is something that 
as fans, we obviously don't know about at the time. It's not like a manager is going to come out and say, oh, by the way, our key centre-back is basically just just full of drugs to make sure he can play and take <laughs> on the pitch. Because obviously the thing drugs, is... And some of them make him play Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously the, the opposition are going to take that and go, right, okay, lads, this is what you need to do. He's going to sort him out in this particular area of his body and he'll be off. Fine. But that must take an immense toll on a person. Like, I mean, I've suffered with my own mental health. I I don't shy away from that whatsoever. Um, You know, I was taking medication for, I want to say maybe four or five years at one point. Mm -hmm. Um, I will... You know, I, I will go on record and say uh, I don't think you should ever compare, uh, you know, between, you know, different people because they've all got their own lived experience. Um, I wonder whether or not if you'd have maybe finished your career a bit earlier, so therefore you didn't need to have all of the injections and everything to keep going, in hindsight... Do you think maybe if you had finished your career slightly earlier, that maybe you wouldn't have felt as low afterwards? You you talked there about not being able to basically be, uh, you know, up on your feet with your family. Yeah, that's that's got to be really hard. It is. It, it is hard. Um, but it, it's kind of like a, an a, an acceptable or accepted byproduct of the industry I want to be in. You know, I, I see it as it, it, it was it was going to happen if I'm gonna if I'm gonna have this career in some guise or another. So you know, my experience was quite extreme, um, but that's not that. If you'd have taken that away, if I'd have retired earlier, 2010. In fact, if I'd have retired earlier, it would have made retirement harder. Because um, the difficulty with retirement is that when you've been in this industry for 17 years, you are institutionalized. You're told when to get up, what to wear, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, uh, who to talk to, who not to talk to, what to say, how to say it, when to go to bed, day in, day out, day in, day out. Uh, and, And then all of a sudden overnight, it's just gone. Totally gone, you know, no no purpose, no direction, no structure. And I made plans for that transition. You know, I got my degree in broadcasting. I, I set up a new job with ITV to stay in the industry. But I never did any work understanding myself, understanding, um, you know, my identity, because my identity had always been Clark Carlisle, the footballer inextricably linked and to take that away overnight just left a gaping chasm in my life because prior to that everything about me was external validation and all around football I I didn't understand my value even as a father or a husband they they didn't even play second fiddle you know that they were just largely irrelevant everything that I did on the pitch determined how good I was as a human and my value to society. So if for 17 years, what you've done is me getting picked for the team means I'm a good son. Mm. Me winning a match means I'm a good father. Me me winning, you know, us winning promotion means I'm a great husband, you know. And then all of a sudden you take that away. 
I'm just totally bereft of direction, of understanding, of identity. And uh, no matter what I've gone into, I needed to understand those components. And having not done that, having not even been, you know, educated in how to do that, I spent, you know, a number of years just in this internal rumination, not just dissecting, but berating myself Mm. for being without football. Mm. with no kind of objectivity or logic you know so to your question Charles it wouldn't matter if I'd have retired five months prior or five years prior I would have still experienced that void of understanding who I am and what my value is because I never knew it without football and I didn't have value without football because I hadn't worked on that. Clark just to finish up how would you sum up your time as a cobbler's player? It was one of the most exciting parts of my football career because I felt valued to be there and I felt that I could contribute. So, you know, to be able to contribute to what I thought were two really excellent achievements, a staying in the league from bottom of the league and then getting to a playoff final, they filled me with a with a huge sense of pride so, yeah, it, it was exciting. I, I believe it was successful. And do you know what, Charles? If my body was working, I would have gone on for another year of the Cobblers happily. Thank you so much for chatting with us, Clark. It's been fantastic to hear your story. Thank you, Danny, as well. And thank, thank you, you uh, for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, you'd like more um, and, and you'd like to support us in making more of them, then you can join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cobblers to me. Thank you, and uh, we'll see you soon. Cheers. Bye. Way! There's the cup. There's the pictures you'll see on tomorrow's back pages. The cobblers are going through into Division 1. Bring them on, because we deserve it. Anyone ever told you, Danny, you got a look of Frankie Boyle? Oh, hundreds of people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hundreds. <laughs> Literally <laughs> most people I meet. <laughs> so original Clark here we go <laughs> yeah. uh, start with that be a great podcast <laughs> Sports Social Podcast Network